Hey there, and welcome to Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. We're in the middle of season number three, dedicated to grit talks and the best of... And today we have got three braided stories from Deja True 4.0. We recently had our event online, and these are three of the eight braided stories. All of them are wonderful. Our stories today are from Joanne Pelletier and Crystal Bartelzi, Rana Levy and Anne Vandy Perky, and finally, Francesca Sobre and Neshama Franklin. Thank you, ladies, for letting me use these stories on this podcast. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including Disco Flash and the 99-second Story Slam. And hey, if you can help us out, let folks know about the podcast. Maybe you can share it on social media. And if you listen on Apple, rate and review this podcast. It helps people find it. I know I ask this a lot, but if you could help us out, that would be wonderful. For today's episode, you will hear three braided stories back to back to back, and you will not hear this bald guy's voice until the very end, so buckle up and let's dive in. Yeah, I'm at Ikea. I bought a bed here last week. It's called the Skugbraka, but they didn't have the matching headboard, so I've come back today to get the headboard. I've always loved Ikea. The whole affordable furnishings thing with a whiff of Scandinavian design. Me and Ikea always good. I'm sobbing on the floor of aisle 35, row K at Ikea. 15 years ago, I swore to never return to this Swedish hellhole ever since the last time I came back here in search of some Vic Tick chairs with my dad. It took us over four hours for that shopping expedition. The endless aisles of stuff, the long lines, the masses of people, then having to find our car again in that football field-sized parking lot. Never mind getting home and having to assemble those chairs with that stupid Allen key. After that visit, I vowed to myself, Ikea, never again. Well, it's always good because I have a strategy. I go early, I avoid the crowds, I skip the showroom, I head straight for all the aisles and bins and shelves of all that stuff so beautifully organized. This, this is what I love. It's the logic of Ikea, the hyper hyped up Ikea-fied order of the universe. And yeah, I like the cute Swedish product names like the girly cushion and the skanka towels and those giant white napkins that are always on sale, the fanstastics. I always stock up. Today, I think I'll have time for a meatball lunch in the cafe. I'm trying to load Sibolt shelving onto my IKEA cart, but they only have two planks in stock. I need five. I'm back. After 15 years, because our contractor, Rob, he's doing some renovations in our place, including installing new shelves. And he insists that I come here to pick up the supplies while he continues to work at home. When I see the display of Victic chairs, it brings it all back. This place is Helvit. That's Scandinavian for hell. I'm a sobbing mess. 
filled with anxiety at the thought that I now have to leave Ikea with the supplies that I came for. Oh my God, it's all too much. I just can't do it. Why can't I just have a calm and happy time here? Like so many who come for the meatballs or the knickknacks, like the skanka towels or the girly cushions. Will I forever despise this place with a passion and be riddled at the thought of every visit? I curse Victic under my breath as I exit in search of my car. Yeah, so there's a problem. IKEA representative Bill tells me the Skugbreka headboard has been discontinued. What? Gone for good. This doesn't make sense. What happened to my IKEA-fied logic and order? Bill, you sold me the bed just last week. How can this be? I mean, surely you knew then. Bill tells me the Skugbreka has been replaced by the dumbass. No, he said Dombass, but I heard dumbass. I don't want the Dombass. I don't want the Dombass. I want that Skugbreka. Bill, I like the Skugbreka. Bill agrees to search the inventory one last time. I arrive home empty-handed like a dumbass. Contractor Rob, he's annoyed, but he tells me to go online and order everything and then go do in-store pickup. Back again I go, but when I get home this time, there's still stuff missing. No choice, I have to go back a third time. I go on a quiet Wednesday afternoon and I meet employee Jane at customer service. She is ready to help. She apologizes to me and she now assures me that I have all the missing pieces to my order. I normally wanna get the hell out of there, but for a moment I am distracted by a large bag of those tea light candles on display in one of those massive bins. And it occurs to me, I have never been to Ikea for any other reason than to purchase things with assembly required. The report is in, it's really not good. Bill leans in and tells me there's only one remaining Skugbraka. It's the floor model in the showroom upstairs. He slides a set of Allen keys across the counter to me. He says, I can go up to the showroom and take apart the bed myself, take that Skugbraka headboard, bring it downstairs and buy that one. (laughs) Bill, could I get some help with this? He says, no, no, there's no time. That's the last known Skugbraka. And you're not the only one who's asking about it. If you want it, you need to go now. Bill, this doesn't make sense. Wait, please. I mean... It doesn't make sense that we're taking apart furniture on the showroom floor. Bill, what if everyone does this? The whole Ikea-fied order of the universe is going to come apart. Bill, it's going to be chaos. Bill, someone might be up there with my Skugbraka. Bill, that's my Skugbraka. And he looks back at me blankly. I'm not making a good impression. And it occurs to me in this moment... I may never have really bought anything here that required a lot of assembly, that could go out of stock, that even needed an Allen key. My whole smug IKEA order and logic thing is really because I've only ever bought knickknacks here. I grab one of those big blue IKEA plastic bags and I make my way down through the yellow and blue brick road and I walk past the fantastic napkins and I throw some in my bag because who doesn't need 250 napkins? And then on the second floor, past the Skuga Bracket headboards, 
I see this huge storage closet on display and I take a photo and both Rob and my husband think it will be perfect. And as I'm admiring it, Jane reappears and she tells me it can be delivered. Yeah, well, look, maybe I've never really known IKEA shopping. Fine, I get it. All that whiff of Scandinavian order and logic is like a chaotic stink to me now. I'm in a Swedish hell vite of out of stock and discontinued. I slowly make my way through this fun maze and I end up in a huge warehouse of plants. Plants? Who knew that IKEA had its own greenhouse? And I take it all in. And it's wonderful. I don't have time for meatballs, no time for fantastic napkins. Hell no. I take my set of Allen keys and I head up to the showroom. Why? I need to go fight for my skoog bracca. My bag is filled with napkins and candles and plants and a storage closet on order. Huh? I mean, I get what all the fuss is about. You just need a strategy. You just go on a quiet afternoon, avoid the masses of people, take a little bit of time, and you too can find some Scandinavian magic. Next visit, I'll try the meatballs. For blufa. What the hell is that? Oh, it's Swedish for amazing. It was fall 1979. I was in college in the film school. I worked as a waitress. I would walk out of the walk-in refrigerator with rutabagas and organic carrots sticking out of my shirt. I was a thief. I stole food. My dad had cut me off because I switched schools. It's fall 1977 and I'm out of school. And I'm working behind the counter in a pizza joint and I serve slices and sandwiches and I ring in the register. And then one day my manager, Luke, says to me not to ring in $50. He says, serve the food, take the money, put it in the register, but don't ring it in. Keep a mental tally. And when you hit 50, then you can start ringing in the sales. He says the owner takes advantage of him and he needs that $50. He wants me to be a thief. The restaurant was called It's Natural and was vegetarian. So I stole all kinds of things I would never eat, but had to eat because I was hungry. I ate vegan casserole, vegan cornbread, leek stew. I would eat off people's plates. I was constantly famished. I served well. People liked me. I would smoke enough pot to not feel bad about stealing the food. And then one day she came in. She sat in my section with a coffee looking at me intently. Never had anything else but coffee. We talked several times and then I went to her apartment. She also had a dad who cut her off, so now I had an accomplice. She taught me new tricks, like putting imported beer down cargo pants. Because of her teaching, I got bolder. I steal natural wines and organic carrot cake. We laugh and think we're renegades, that we are above the law. I don't want to break the law. I mean, I feel funny stealing, but I like Luke, so I figure, okay, I'll just do it this once. And then soon it becomes like every day. And Luke starts changing the amounts. But you know what? I kind of like the mental math challenge. And I get really, really good at register robbery. And I become a thief. Finally, I was let go. 
They had to have known about the stealing. Plus, I made no attempt to hide the fact that I was smoking pot in the bathroom stall. One day, Luke hands me a wad of bills. Now, I feel kind of funny taking it, but I think about how he said the, the owner takes advantage of him. And I think about how every morning when I go downstairs to get the supplies, the owner comes out of his office and he jokes and he laughs at me carrying everything. And he says how strong I am and what a good worker I am. And then he puts his arms around me and he pulls me in and he starts kissing me. I take the money. When I go to restaurants now, I tip exorbitantly. I'm never stoned. That went away a long time ago. But I think I can read the eyes of people who are. And I hope they're not eating off people's plates. And when I go to restaurants now, it's 45 years later. I mean, I don't steal just that once. And that went away a long time ago. But I hope, I hope against hope that buses aren't trying to kiss their female employees. morning of our wedding day, I stood in the kitchen looking out the window, suddenly not so sure of our impending nuptials. Then you stepped into the kitchen completely naked, looked at me with that mischievous gleam in your eye, the one that reminds me of Harpo Marx, and said, today is my wedding day. I must do a dance. You stepped out into our not enclosed backyard and proceeded to do this ridiculous dance, arms flailing, hopping up and down, looking more like Pan than Harpo. Thank you, I said. Pep is exactly who I want to spend the rest of my life with. Well, I wasn't even intending to get married. I mean, I was only 19. But I met this guy, John, in our mutual workplace, the Registrar's Office of Columbia University. My old nanny had gotten me a job there because I was virtually unemployable. And John and I started to live together, which you didn't do back in the 50s. And every time I passed my old nanny's desk, which I had to do many times a day, she would mutter at me, you should get married, it's time to get married. So John and I were sitting together and I said, Amelie says we should get married. What do you think? You think we should get married? He said, well, it never even occurred to me, but do you want to get married? And out of my mouth came this resounding, yes, which really surprised me because even though I had been sexually adventuresome, there were so many men out there and I was only 19. But I realized that it might be the greatest sleepover that never had to end. And so I said, yes. 15 years later, I'm visiting family on Nantucket. You call me, indescribable pain, horrible gas, a trip to the ER. Should I come home now, two days ahead of schedule? Nah, you said, don't worry. Then our friend Bill called, get here now, he said, worry. The surgeon tells me metastasized colon cancer, stage four. The days of not living in my body begin. The constant roar of fear makes it almost impossible to hear. I pull my chair closer to your bed. I take your hand and hold it through the night. You wake. We look at each other for a long time. You know. And then you say, I want to thank you for always being so sexy. I laugh, happy to see that your humor has not been removed with a large section of your colon.
one of the great things about John was his incredible sense of humor, which masked uh, deep sensitivity. And he was a big guy, athletic, but there was always something going on with his lungs. He talked about it as asthma, and he used an asthma inhaler, but down the line, later and later, it was clear that something was going on in those lungs. And three months before it happened, it was time to see what was going on. And so there we were. There we were in the ICU. This was really serious stuff. It was uh, an infection or, or, or an inflammation from something we didn't know what, even though he had been smoking forever. We kind of knew it was not going to work out. We had had maybe three months to plan, if anybody can plan for an exit. We did the practical stuff, and we did the unspoken saying goodbye. And just before they hooked him up with a ventilator, we looked at each other and he said to me, pobrecita, poor little one in Spanish. Neither of us spoke Spanish, but that was the word we used. I said, pobrecita back. And those were our last words. Four years later, at least four more surgeries. The drumming of fear is deafening. We both know what's coming. I sleep next to your bed. Sometime in the early morning, you slip out the door, out of the room. You never did say goodbye. Well, John had a kind of an amazing sense of timing. And although we were supposed to unplug the ventilator on Friday so everybody would be gathered around, it was Thursday night. And I had my hands on his torso was still well fleshed. He looked like a felled Roman statue. I felt under my fingertips an actual leap. And I knew that that was his soul leaving his body. That was the signal. And at that moment, I felt that same kind of vertiginous push that I, that I said when I said yes all those years back. And, but this time it took me over the cosmos, it made me both huge and tiny. And as I stood there, I realized that John had given me an amazing gift, the second half of a life as an independent woman. Funny how being with partners with you, I was my most independent self. Without you, I flounder. Where is my pep? I often ask. Where is my pep? As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to our six storytellers for this Best of Deja True, Joanne and Crystal, Vandy and Rana, Nishama and Francesca. Thank you, ladies. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including Disco Flash and the 99-second story Slam. We really appreciate your support. And if you have a moment or two, rate and review this podcast if you listen on Apple. It helps people find it, and we want more people to find it. Thank you for that, and that is all for episode number 73. Boom.